A reading from the book of Romans, beginning in the eighth chapter. What, then, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Lent can feel a lot like cleaning out your fridge. You have to sort out what's still fresh and alive and what's rotted out and dead. And there's an intentionality in Lent, an introspection, that I think can feel about as fun as finding the moldy pinto beans at the back of the fridge. You know the ones I mean? Anyone? Well, okay. <laughs> Why, when you open the lid, do you do like a big inhale to see if it smells bad? You don't need to, but every time I do. There's something about the intentionality in Lent that can feel about as fun as sniffing in those moldy pinto beans. But it's important to remember that, one, everybody has moldy pinto beans at the back of their fridge from time to time. And two, you find the moldy food and you toss it out. You don't open the Tupperware lid and then set them on the counter for 40 days to contemplate their horror, right? Speaking spiritually, doing the hard work of trying to look full-facedly at your sinful habits and patterns isn't about obsessing over them. It's not about essentially setting them on the counter of your life so that you can be constantly reminded of their stench for the 40 days of Lent. It is rather a work done in concert with the Holy Spirit to bring about a cleansing. And this is the important part. Because your soul is worth it. Doing the hard work of introspection and confession and examination of conscience that is not really that fun is you working in concert with the Holy Spirit because your soul is worth it. Modern life has most of us feeling lonely, spread too thin, and distracted. And when you add our own guilt on top of that, it can leave us feeling like a fraud, like if anybody found out the truth, we'd be left alone for sure. So we've all developed coping mechanisms to try to survive the exhaustion, right? 
And the psychiatric sciences are catching up to what the church calendar has already taught us, that we need seasons of intentional reflection, space to reconsider what is life all about? What am I doing? What's become of me? So, it's the little things, right? We cut out alcohol, we cut out social media, we cut out sugar, or sometimes meals altogether as a way of asking ourselves in our bodies, what is the one thing necessary? What actually is the good life that I believe? And I think there's a key difference here, a breaking off point, if you will, between those who follow Christ and those who don't in how these culling seasons are approached. Because in the Christian imagination, Lent is not a self-improvement season, nor is it a season of self-flagellation. In a sense, rather, I think Lent should be a time for us to get in the habit of developing a set of frequently asked questions. And that's what all of the abstaining and fasting is about. It's about giving yourself time and clarity of space to start asking yourself the right questions and to develop habits and patterns of asking them over and over again. And I cannot think of a better set of questions to frequently ask than the ones that St. Paul asks for us in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who could be against us? Now, St. Paul knew quite well just who could be against us. He bore the marks in his body of the stones hurled at him until he was left for dead. Paul will be shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, threatened, and maligned as he goes about filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. If St. Paul cared more about his own comfort than the message of Christ's kingship, he'd have never left the house on Straight Street. Do you remember when Ananias gets the vision of Christ telling him to go and heal this man who had been persecuting the church? At his conversion, as Paul sat blind, awaiting this man to come and open his eyes, we're told that God showed him all of the things he would suffer for Christ. Paul knew quite well who could be against us, and yet he still asked the question, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for us, who could be against us isn't a formula to a life without suffering. On the contrary, for many Christians throughout the world, being on the side of God leads to incredible suffering. That's what Christ is talking about in our New Testament lesson, being willing to take up your cross and follow him. But this gets back to the authority piece that we talked about last week, that there are those now who have been granted a temporary authority, many of whom are misusing it. But there is a day coming when Christ will be all in all, and God will put all things in subjection to him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. There is none beside him. As he himself said, God is a God of the living and not the dead. Therefore, fear those who kill the body but are Fear not those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. 
Now, in a rather strange way, I think this is exactly what Paul is getting at. If you are in Christ, then God is for you. He's for you. He's not just with you. He's for you. He is on your side. The legal indebtedness of your sin has been done away with, and now the singular judge, the only one that exists, has come out with an opinion that ultimately matters, right? And he's come out in favor of you because of the work that Christ accomplished in his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. There is only one court who has any power over the souls of human beings, and it is the court of Jesus Christ himself. And he says, if you're in him, then he's for you. The entirety of your debt has been nailed to the cross and done away with. So really, if God is for us, who could be against us? The second question we should ask ourselves regularly, if God the Father didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is saying God has given his very best gift, himself. He has already given you himself. Why would he hold back any other good gift from us? There's an icon. I sometimes use it on the front of our orders of worship in Advent. It's usually referred to as Mary wider than the heavens. And the idea is that Mary is truly Theotokos, right? The mother of God. She carried Christ, God the Son, in her womb. And there's an early prayer of the church that says, O womb wider than the span of heaven, a womb that contained him that the seven heavens do not contain. You get it? Mary wider than the heavens. She was able to contain him in her womb that the seven heavens could not contain. As St. Paul says to the Colossian church, by Jesus all things were created. All things were created through him and for him and in him all things hold together. He who is wider than the heavens is sustaining all life in this universe right now by the power of his word. Do you see that in Christ the Son of God being given to us, we have already been given all things because it's in him that all things exist. Now we live in a world that seems to exist in a nearly constant state of need. I read recently that more Americans have an Amazon Prime account than voted in the last election. Interesting. Acquisition is the name of the game, right? It's like we have this black hole that just demands more and more and more. But it's, it's not just about consumerism. There's a darker side to this constant need and what the emptiness that's within us is driving us to. The number of opioid-related deaths in this country has risen to 175 a day, every single day. I read somewhere that Oregon is about sixth highest 
The average heroin user in Oregon is a young man between 21 and 29 years old. Usually the people that have like the most life in them, the most reason to live. Even if you don't look at just substance abuse, by many metrics, we are just not really doing well as a society. Need I mention another mass shooting? So can you imagine? What would happen if every person in this city who claimed to be a Christian, who has been baptized into Christ, spent 10 minutes each morning asking themselves, if God has given me Jesus Christ, what else could I possibly need? Imagine if you didn't have anything to prove in conversation with people, even people who look down on you. Imagine entering each day with all of its pain and joy and sorrow and comfort and viewing it as a gift. Imagine not viewing other people as competition or a nuisance or a liability. There's a great scene in 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy, he's the high-powered CEO, right? He spent his entire life climbing corporate success and chasing money, and he's talking with Kenneth. Kenneth is the simpleton. He's, he's the page, which is like infinitely worse than an intern. He works something like 160 hours a week and gets paid next to nothing. And in this particular scene, you as the viewer get to see the world first as Jack sees it, and there's just dollar signs everywhere. Everything in his office has a dollar amount. Every person that comes into his life has a dollar amount. Everything is either making him money or costing him money, but the thing that he sees before everything else is money. And then you get to see everything as Kenneth sees it. And Kenneth sees everything and everyone as Muppets. <laughs> it's just good intentions and friendship. Everyone means what they say, and they say only the kindest of things. The Christian vision of the world is neither of these things. It is neither a zero-sum competition, nor is it naive idealism that fails to look at reality squarely. Rather, we are to encounter the world as cruciform people, cross-formed people, meaning that we are people who have been formed in the way of the cross so that we can actually take evil seriously. We of all people should be able to take evil seriously because we can admit, along with Solzhenitsyn, that it's not just out there, that there's a line of good and evil that actually runs down every human heart. And when we recognize that God has given us Christ and him crucified, we no longer have to pretend that evil isn't devastating. Because it absolutely is. It's horrifying and devastating, and we know it is because we have been given the afflicted Christ, the perfect, beautiful Son of God, was ripped apart because of the evil of this world. But we also no longer have to live as if we are locked in the devastation of evil because we have been given Christ the firstborn from the dead, the head over not just creation, but the new creation. He is remaking all things. 
If God is for you, who could possibly be against you? If God has given you the crucified and risen Christ, what gift would he possibly withhold from you? If you've been given Christ and in him the entire universe is held together, what more could you need? Yeah. That sounds good, doesn't it? I know. I know what you're thinking. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the ways that I've failed as a parent or a spouse or a friend. You don't know the shameful secrets that I carry around, right? Is that one cropped up in your mind yet? It's nice that Paul was a bit of an inspired genius, isn't it? Because he's ahead of us here too. If God himself justifies us, he said, who could possibly condemn us? Your sin that the devil has used to imprison you in shame and guilt no longer has power over you because as St. Paul says to the Philippians, he counts all things as loss so that he may have a righteousness that doesn't come through the law, right? Doing it himself, but through faith in Christ. As he said earlier in his letter to the Romans, you are justified by his grace as a gift. It's a gift. You can't earn it. So yeah, the devil will tempt you to sin. And when you fall into it, he will heap condemnation on you. But just listen to Martin Luther. When the devil throws your sins in your face, he said, and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. If God has given you justification as a free gift, what is there that could stand up and condemn you? After all, Jesus Christ the perfect Son of God, the one who made himself a perfect oblation and sacrifice, the one who was resurrected in the power of the Spirit and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, meaning he is co-regent with the Father over all that is. He is himself interceding for you. He has given you everything. He has taken away all of your sin, and he's still just there saying, these are my people. These are my people. These are my people. Look upon them with love. The eternal high priest, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, before whom all of the elders and the multitudes of saints bowed down in endless worship because he alone is worthy of all praise. He has given you his own righteousness as a gift, and he endlessly intercedes on your behalf. He's doing it right now. Why would he do all of this? I mean, right? Why would he do all of this? Rowan Williams, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, has this insightful little line. He says, humans love largely because of fellow feeling. Right? There's a connection. There's an overlap. 
But God's love is such that it never depends on having something in common. The creator has, in one sense, nothing in common with his creation. How could he? But he is completely free to exercise his essential being, which is love, wherever he wills. God does all of this for you because of love. And this may sound a little bit strange, but it's actually really great news that his love isn't based on shared heritage or common interests. Which means you don't have to pretend to be somebody else to get his attention and to stay in his good graces. He loves you because he loves you, because he is love. That's why. So you don't have to be the greatest parent who ever lived. You don't have to be the best in school and have perfect grades. You don't have to have your boss or your peers recognize all your achievements by offering you greater success. You don't have to be the perfect child, the perfect husband or wife, or the perfect friend. What's the burden that you brought with you into this place, the one that you have been carrying around for so long you barely even remember that it's there? Is it that deep down you just think maybe you're unlovable? You're not good enough that they won't accept you or recognize your greatness? Have you been keeping a list of all your wins, all of your achievements in order to prove to everyone, look, I, I deserve to be in? It's exhausting. Or maybe you've been feeding all of your failures so that they keep whispering to you at night about how shameful you are, how you don't deserve anything good, how when anyone finds out, they're going to leave. It's paralyzing. So ask yourself, if God is for you, if he has given you Christ, his only son, if he himself has justified you and made you righteous as a complete gift, What is there in all of the worlds that exist or may exist or could have existed that could separate you from the love of God? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.